are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. My name is Valerie Francisco Menchavez, an associate professor in sociology and sexuality studies at San Francisco State University. And I'm one of your hosts today, alongside Dr. Michael Viola, an associate professor at St. Mary's College of California in the Justice Community and Leadership Program and affiliate faculty in the Ethnic Studies Program. This episode features the Philippine sociologist, activist, writer, and scholar, Professor Sarah Raimundo, a full-time faculty at the University of the Philippines, Diliman Center for International Studies. She is a member of the National Executive Board of the Alliance of Concerned Teachers, ACT, and currently the external vice chair of the Philippine Anti-Imperialist Studies Program. She is currently working on a project entitled Making Space for Indigenous Knowledge, Sustainabilities and Futures, with years of fieldwork with Lumad communities in Mindanao and Itas in Pampanga and Zambales. To the clock. All right, we're on. Sarah Raimundo, the legend, is here on episode two of PPE. Thank you so much. PPES. PPE is our podcast series name. And I think it stands for Politics, Praxis, and Engagement Solidarity. No, really, we we call it PPE, Sarah, because, you know, so many of the Filipino migrants here in the States are in need of PPE right now and can't get it um, because of the PPE. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah just put on her PPE right now. So this is going to be the legit. Oh, it's she has all of it. The the goggles and the face mask. (laughs) Excellent, Sarah. Okay, so Sarah, we, me and Mike first met you so many years ago. Mike, how long ago now? Maybe more than a decade has to more, be. More, definitely. I think I met Mike when he first, you, you first came to the Philippines for this um, public, what is it? Philippine uh, Studies Forum? Yes, PSP. That, yeah, that was 2004. Wow. And then Mike and I- I was in grade school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so young when you- (laughs) (laughs) So me and Mike, as grad students, led this campaign to support your, you know, getting tenure. Remember? Do remember. That was the first first ever letter that was written to slam- the injustice 
exacted the, upon me by certain authorities were written by Valerie Francisco and Michael Viola. Yeah, from the U.S. People were like, who are these? <laughs> there was a lot of people who signed that in true. support of your case. True. Yeah. True. True. That was like yeah. 2006, right? Sarah, you know this. 2009. Oh, 2009. Your trauma. The trauma. Yeah. Sorry, the trauma. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes. So yeah. that's how we all came to be together. And then Sarah has been someone who, um, in our little community of scholar activists, Kasamas, have really informed our work. Um, we organized maybe. Um, in 2012, maybe a panel with Robin working off of her um, Migrants for Export, but also in conversation with you, Sarah, Jan Padios, Faith Caress, um, Fritzi DeMata, and I and Robin had a panel sort of engaging her work and your work as well. So your work has, and your political work has informed so much of our um how we think of ourselves as scholars and activists here. So Mike and I are so honored for you to be our guest. My God. Uh, this really sounds like a eulogy. Oh, <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> That's right. Let me let me oh, transcribe I, that. Save that. Save that. <laughs> so you are alive. And you bring us, oh, yeah. you bring us a lot of joy and happiness um, whenever we get to reconvene with you. And yeah. so I want to hear that to start off, what are you doing right now to be okay during this time of um, the world literally being upside down, mm -hmm. um, sheltering right. in place, you know, um, the rising fascism all around the mm. world. Like, mm -hmm. how are you? How are you being okay? What's it? What are you doing to? Well, well I think it's true that um, you know our lives have been really been um, have been upended by the pandemic, but also I think not really completely. Um, I think we have managed somehow to uh, you know cling to important. Um, practices and principles like um, remaining and getting organized uh, despite the pandemic. So I think what keeps me, um, how do you say, what keeps me not depressed despite the draconian lockdown would be, um, well, on, on a daily basis, uh, we would still be in contact with comrades, planning stuff, you know, so um, I've been engaged in uh, organizing webinars, uh, and it's a whole new world <laughs> in front of my computer. Hi, guys, etc. So, and then, so I think that keeps keeps us busy um, organizing in a new way. You know, uh, reaching out to uh, people uh, even beyond the Philippines, right? Because now it's possible. So. Um, I've been working with comrades with Bayan uh, and ILPS. Um, and also I've uh, been working with People's Strike, um, which, which began in May, right? So uh, we've been doing um, work for the international committee of that one. 
and um, I think what also keeps me really um, how to say busy but also joyful would be these webinars. I've been a webinar addict. <laughs> So just, you know, ILPS webinars, um, I would register and I would attend, um, what else? I'd be, I attended a course, I became a student, yeah, uh, a course on uh, Marxism and National Liberation. So I had classmates, we had deadlines, we were, you know, doing all of these uh, group work. So our class or our group uh, worked on Walter Rodney. I think I mentioned that to Mike before. So that, and plus, uh, because we're forced to stay home, then um, I'm getting all the support from my family. I live with them now because, you know, I'm, I'm out of campus. So that's fine because then we don't have to worry about each other because we're here. It's easy to check on each other. So in a way, um, we have managed to make life um, secure despite everything. But of course, this is not, this is not, the norm, right? I mean, um, majority of uh, Filipinos have been um, kicked out of their jobs, have been uh, really suffering severe um, repression from the police. In fact, today, uh, they're going to uh, lay to rest Baby River. You, you heard, you've heard of that, right? Uh, River Emmanuel Nasino, uh, the daughter of uh, Comrade Reina Nasino, who's a political prisoner. So she gave birth in prison, and one month and a half after, uh, they, the courts decided that they should separate mother and child. But she was very sickly. B Baby River was really sickly because of the conditions in prison uh, while she was still in her mother's tummy. And one and a half month later, she dies of you know, complications resulting from pneumonia. And so today, they bury her, but they have turned the, fun the funeral parlor into a war zone. So there's truckloads of police and it's really ridiculous. So that's, that's uh, I think that's the normal phase of Corona here in the Philippines, right? Yeah. That is um, the Baby Rivers case is devastating, um, not only because of, you know, uh, the conditions, um, but I know that there were granted like, um, you know, other kind of uh, high profile prisoners that were politicians mm -hmm. were ha have been granted, you know, exactly. leaves uh, mm -hmm. to attend funerals of family members and it was so hard even a struggle to have um, her even be reunited with her child as you know she says goodbye so right yeah I, I want to ask you a little bit Sarah about um, what is it like to be in the Philippines during this time uh, you know you, you briefly talked about you know joblessness and um, things like that but what what other can you describe for us what it, it it's like to be living under a pandemic um, and also like under the Duterte administration for Filipinos right now mm -hmm. uh, well of course the majority really uh, suffers from not only joblessness but I think uh, the Duterte government has really been successful in, in spreading uncertainty 
you know like um this um this myth about uh the pandemic as being a uh, the enemy uh the invisible enemy i think they have succeeded in promoting that idea that it's a war it's an invisible enemy and so there's no way that we can know what it is uh, there's no way to know who has it, and we won't even go into mass testing. We don't. Even, we won't even go into you know um, these things. So um, I think it, it's not a new condition, right? It's something that has been there before. Like uh, this is how uh, this is what happens when, um, say, for example, um, um, this is the result of. Um, uh, the uh, of the uh, an agribusiness, a huge agribusiness um, sector that uh, really produces all of these pathogens and so on and so forth, right? And they pretend to not know that. They pretend to uh, not have knowledge about it because they want to attract foreign investors and agribusiness, right? And um, they want to maintain the privatization of the public health care system. And so they'll say that, you know, we will, Duterte says we are looking at China or Russia or, you know, the United States for a solution, right, um, for a vaccine. So instead of explaining uh, to uh, the citizens the sources of this pandemic, they prefer to really mystify it. Right, and of course, we deserve to be informed, right? We deserve to be educated, but that's not what's happening. So, the result is uh, I think people are they, well, they want to make people more docile because the more we not know, the more we depend on the rules that they make, right? So, it's it's we're, we are in that situation, and um, apart from the fact that you know the government doesn't really provide adequate assistance to those who have been jobless and it's really horrible it's <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so horrible and it it reminds me of right now it's election season here in the u.s and yeah. the docility right mike of and keeping people uninformed and you know it's such a tactic of fascism it's such a tactic of like you know dare i say near dictatorship you know is like keep them uninformed so we can sort of manipulate the situation it's like there's some similarities there's two things though sarah you're talking about like getting to the root of the issue and like mm -hmm. getting to the root of the issue would really require a radical transformation of the way we produce food the way in which um, uh, we organize our cities, um, the ways it would, that would like, and I don't think that's happening anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then, so there's one, that's one lane. And then another lane though, where I think the United States is leading is the like, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Like, don't even wear masks. Um, and this, like, we're living the dream, like, this is the consequences of, like, neoliberalism, of, like, you know what, government is not going to be anywhere, you all can take care of yourself. And I'm wondering, are we, are you, are you seeing the same thing in regards to that second lane? Because I think there's a unity there in the sense of, like, no one's talking about the root issues um, in the United States that I know of. 
I know there's some amazing Marxist scholars. Rob Wallace is, you know, really important. Mike Davis has been instrumental. Nobody's really talking about their work. So um, the, on the second lane though, in the sense of not even just getting to the root, but like just making sure that people are safe. Are you seeing similar things in the Philippines? In mm -hmm. regards to don't wear masks, you know, mm. president gallivanting around the, com the communities and being like, it's not a big deal. Well, yeah, the first lane, um, actually it's, it's something that, um, it, it's, well, there is, uh, there, there would be uh, a dimension or maybe spaces in Philippine society where that is not true. Uh, for example, I would, I'll, I'll tell you a very interesting story. I think it was around April when, was it April or May, or maybe towards May, when there was this, um, it was being aired on primetime TV that the New People's Army in Eastern Visayas uh, hijacked uh, the donations or um, ayuda coming from government, right? And it's really interesting because, uh, so, you know, um, government channel and even other channels would, uh, would report on this. But also uh, other channels, not government channel, would interview people from Eastern Visayas from this particular town. And they would say, oh, no, we, we didn't see that. We actually received the, the Ayuda and so on and so forth. And then so we were looking. I was looking. And it was around the same week that actually the Communist Party of the Philippines released a statement, um, um, you know, commanding the New People's Army to um, really engage in food production, ensure that there's going to be food supply and um, mobilize the barrios uh, in that area and well, in, in areas where they are, where they are in power. And one of the places where, uh, one of the first responders would be that area. And, um, and they, they would publish this, right? But of course not in mainstream um, media, but in their publications. So, um, I've, I've, I've read that uh, it was also in Eastern Visayas where as early as uh, March, uh, they have mobilized, uh, the People's Army have mobilized the different um, red zones as well as barrios. Uh, so they came up with a systematic plan to plant um, uh, camote, banana, um, you know, green leafy vegetables, uh, rice, even rice production and so on and so forth. So, you know, um, so they were engaged in this particular project and, um, and that's how they were being accused of hijacking Ayuda because at some point, you know, they were able to maybe distribute food and really just organize uh, communities. And um, they've been applying the uh, principles of agroecology, promoting agroecology in um in you know in in uh, guerrilla zones because uh, this has been a project since maybe um since 2015 or even earlier than that um it's not just you know uh agroecology as a science but uh they connect it with uh bunkalan uh just you know um tilling the land right uh, and um, and it's all part of this uh, project of demanding land to the tillers because you cannot even apply any sort of agricultural knowledge 
like agroecology if you don't occupy land that originally belongs to the people, right? So, but, and that's the idea, uh, land redistribution and so on and so forth. So something as um, ordinary as food production and harvesting really has, uh, you know, radical roots uh, and you know, it, it looks radical because that's how repressive the system is. That's how accumulative it is. So people who would, you know, occupy a space and really plant and apply, um, you know, more sustainable uh, methods of farming, they're being demonized as terrorists and so on and so forth, or, or even project that to the media uh, as, you know, um, act of um, hijacking, uh, donations and so on so that was yeah so i would say that um here in the philippines there would be uh spaces that um where you know it, it's not the same there are pockets yeah. of hope and rational thinking yeah um like farmers know filipino farmers know how to survive this it's just that they're super tied to um you know um the free market Right. And mm -hmm. so, for example, uh, the Department of Agriculture just announced a few days ago that it will import 300,000 tons of rice instead of buying rice from the farmers. And it's harvest season. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So it's, it's really um, lamentable how this kind of knowledge coming from uh, our farmers, uh, which, you know, and it's something that was really repressed and suppressed during the time of Marcos because they had to apply um, farming technologies attuned to, um, you know, um, agribusiness, right? Like all of these um, fertilizers um, and stuff that really poisons the soil permanently. But prior to that, our farmers would know how to, you know, they, they would know um, sustainable methods. Um, but now these sustainable methods are even, um, you know, uh labeled as uh terrorist practices yeah and you know this is actually um a good segue to um what you're thinking about and writing about yesterday you just gave a talk um and mike also you know mentioned the chapter that you had sent him is this some of these things have they informed the way that you're writing about the geographies of resistance as um, as you called it or uh, was on the flyer? All right. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think um, it's also, so it's, it's something that I've been also trying to understand and I've been very interested in. And it, it's, it's a result of a lot of things. Like for example, my training in the university uh, um, the fact that I joined the activist when I was in college, um, it's also, uh, I think, a function of my life experience as, uh, you know, I, my parents were engaged in uh, the anti-Marcos movement. Um, but I think my, my really, my interest in this particular uh, topic has to do with my very first teacher, and that would be my Lola, my grandmother. So she, she raised me when I was a kid and my parents were working. And um, she would always tell me about this place where she grew up. So she's from Negros, 
uh, you probably are familiar with Negros because this is the center of Duterte's, uh, you know, uh, murderous rampage against farmers, right? So she's from Negros in Silay. So every day uh, before we would go to sleep, she would tell me a story about, uh, you know, when the Japanese came or about her childhood. And I, I have a very clear picture of her parents, whom I've never met, right? Uh, and their names are Lucia and Joaquin. Okay, so it's uh, Lucia and Joaquin Hobson. Um, and then, you know, uh, of course, growing up, we would go to different places when it's summertime, right? But we never went to Silay Negros. Um, yeah, I don't have pictures of Silay. My grandmother doesn't have any pictures of Silay. She doesn't have any... Um, pictures when they were kids, you know, just all of those stories, right, um, of, of her parents. Um, and at some point, they migrated to Manila. But Lucia, her mother, died there uh, in, in Negros. No? So she, both of, so her parents, uh, I would learn later, were sacadas, meaning landless peasants. And, um, I think they were seven siblings. I'm not very sure anymore. But um, so they couldn't afford to really, uh, you know, sustain uh, their, their family. And so Lucia had to go to the city and uh, work for, uh, I think, a, she, was, she's a, she was a sewer. So she makes dresses, she makes clothes, etc. And she would only see her kids six months. So six months, she would go home to Silai. Six months, she would be in the city, right? And so my, uh, my, my grandmother uh, had to take care of her younger siblings uh, as well as her, you know, elder, elder sisters. Um, and then I only came to Silay Negros very recently, like 2018. Right, yeah. Um, I even, you know, I, <laughs> it's funny how I have even um, met Mike in his workplace, met you guys in San Francisco before I could even come to where I actually come from, right? And then it struck Your me- Your ancestral lands. You I know. <laughs> but to. then I realized that um, it was for, actually it was for Judy's, uh, so Judy, Judy's family celebrated her mom's um, centennial, right? 100 and Ju and Judy, Judy. And you're referring to Judy Tagiwalo. Judy Tagiwalo, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're from Bacolod. And uh, I think we had to pass by Silay, right? Uh, going to that place. And so while, so we were in the car and we were there. And I was thinking that, I mean, I probably have known this all, all, all the, you know, I've always known it. But it, it struck me very clearly that it was like a moment of, uh, you know, realization that, Oh, yeah, the reason why I've never been I've never been here because we really don't have a place to go back to. Right? I mean, because my uh, great grandparents were landless peasants, right? So they tilled the land all their life, but you know, they were dispossessed, right? And so I think you know that's always been in my mind. And I think it's um I think in many ways, my grandmother knew that and, and it's how also, they, it's how they raised their children and so on and so forth. My parents would have some kind of an understanding of that, but it's, it, you know, it's never stated clearly. It's just, it's, it's gut feel, it's gut feel, it's habitus, right? It's there. Uh, you can never erase class origins, right? 
so yeah so i thought so i think you know it's it's always been uh it's always been something that i i know it's there within me but it's something that i really have to understand right this uh you know this phenomenon of accumulation and how so many people are so dispossessed right um and i also remember when i was a kid there was this campaign um save the children of negros um it was in the 80s under marcos um uh, when um there was a crisis i think in um in negros and uh you know children were so malnourished and they were being featured on television having really huge heads and really you know like skinny and almost dying and um and i was telling my grandmother this is where you come from right this is this is negros and then yeah and she said yes um do you know these people i was i was a kid right so do you know them would you know them and then she told me they, maybe they they are your cousins and so i i never forgot that you know like um there is just there there's this there's this question that's always there that's hanging you know you know what i'm saying like um when you see people uh when you see children who are supposed to be coming to school you know what i'm saying who are supposed to be not homeless who are supposed to not be dispossessed you know i always wonder whether are, are we related are we you know what you know that kind of you know just it's it's a nagging feeling and i felt like i really need to understand this maybe it's not conscious that i need to understand because you know i come from this ancestry but it's there um it's very concrete it's not everything you know um i don't think um my dispos- my current disposition is not something that i have just read from marx you know it's because what marx has uh, had laid out is also something that is concrete it's something that's lived by people right yeah I love hearing the story of your family Sarah. I didn't You said know. you like drama. So I'm <laughs> giving it to you. Like teleseria, like <laughs> you know, quality right here. I'm like it's <laughs> gripping. I I want to know I want to know though in terms of just like you know about, you know, um the, the we've had conversations about children and i'm wondering like your grandmother telling you stories your parents telling you stories about um uh their opposition to the marcos dictatorship um was it the storytelling that really helped helped you in terms of like the feeling that you had it gave you a vocabulary and mm-hmm. helped to um help you imagine or kind of think new things or what 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 was it um my grandmother definitely it it was all storytelling right um about uh you know uh during the japanese war and how they had uh dug up a uh an underground like a basement because they had to be there so that they will not be raped so she was talking about rape to a kid like maybe i was 4 or 3 and it was stated as a matter of fact and but you know it was because my grandmother was also a teacher you know so she, you know she it wasn't really so i know there was something really very wrong with it 
right? That it's not supposed to happen again. And, um, but in the case of my parents, because we're all living together, uh, my, my father is my grandmother's only son. So we lived with her in her house. Um, they never told me anything because they were busy working and also they were being active. But, um, you know, they had comrades coming over. They would, they would hold meetings and they would bring me to rallies and, and strikes. So that, that's how I learned about what they're doing. But I don't remember them really teaching me stuff. You know, like um, I knew that Marcus was a bad person. Um, you know what I, you know, and, but I think what really, um, what I remember from that, uh, from that phase, from that age would be that, uh, they were very joyful, you know, their friends, their comrades would be coming over and this, these are my titos and my titas. And, um, I remember, uh, my mom would even assign one of them to come to, the PTA meeting, parents, teachers, association meeting, because as usual, they cannot make it. And I remember this one comrade who made it. And I, 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 he probably was really had a charming personality. He was elected the president of the PTA. But she, he was just coming there one time, big time. It's crazy. And they were, and they were very young. My, my parents had me when they were only, I think, 24. So they had young friends who were combating the dictatorship. And so I, I never, I, I, and, and they called the NPAs nice people around and, and so on and so forth. And, and they would, my, my, uh, I would remember my mom telling me that, Okay, your titas and titos, they're coming. Kasamas are coming. Um, you're not supposed to tell the neighbors that we have visitors. You know, um, you know stuff like that. And because they didn't want me, because I was really talkative um, as a kid, they didn't want me to get out of the house because they were almost sure that I'm gonna be. Hey, yeah, we have people there and blah. So they didn't, they didn't want that. Um, so they would let me stay, stay in. And uh, I, I don't remember, but maybe I was just there observing, listening, you know. Um, so, like yeah. learning marks as a warrior. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I don't Taking remember. Notes. I was just, I remember Dialectic being raised up a lot, you know, like. <laughs> Historical. <laughs> Drawing it because she can't write yeah. yet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Six so, that's figures. what I remember from, you know, so I, I guess so when. When I, when I was already in college, I didn't really have this poor um, impression or, you know, prejudice towards um, activists because I remember them being just really happy and being nice and, you know, they love to cook, they love to eat, you know, stuff like, you know, very, you know, sensual stuff, not rational stuff, right? Not, I, I don't, re I mean, not like I know that, my, you know, my, my parents, comrades believe in this. I don't have that memory. But I remember them being, you know, Human. people who want to have fun, who wants, they want to cook, they love to eat, they laugh a lot. So that, that's how, that's what I remember largely from that uh, period. Yeah, human, like Mike was saying, yeah, you, exactly. that they were, yeah. they're just the people you grew up with. And, you know, um, I really hope that that's how I'm raising my kids too. You know, I, that sounds like a really delightful 
childhood. Um, yeah. I want to ask you this question that, you know, I think a part of this podcast was a uh, series was us thinking about what it meant to be scholar activists at this moment. And there's this term critical Filipina, Filipino studies here in, in the States. I don't know. I'm sure it's not in the Philippines, is it? No, no one says that critical Philippine studies. Is there a term like that, Sarah? Here in the Philippines? Yeah. We have Philippine studies. Yeah. So here in the US, we make, we're making that distinction around a critical Filipino studies. And right. I don't know if you followed this sort of development of this idea and this field, but there is such a thing here. And we wanted, we've been asking, we want to ask all the scholars on this podcast, what does that mean to you as a scholar, as an activist, as someone, you know, writing in this? Do you want me to respond to your to that question, like how I feel about your organization, or just the idea of a critical Filipino Filipina studies? Go ahead, Mike. I would. Oh, think. all right. Um, yeah. I think. Well, I would begin with how um, I am approaching critical theory, right? So, um, as a sociology major. In the 90s, we were told that um, critical theory is a perspective that um, studies what is, uh, but it, 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 what is must be or should be compared against something, right? And what is this something? It must be compared against what should be. So um, that's how I've always understood critical theory, that you have uh, a concrete analysis of concrete conditions, but also you have a vision and you have to compare what is happening against that particular vision. And that's what allows anyone to be critical, right? Uh, I'm saying this because most of uh, what I've observed as social science has largely been really descriptive, right? And, um, you know, people are uh, reluctant to compare it against a vision, right? Because they'd say that, oh, that's just utopia, that's just idealist, etc. Which is not true because I think there were endeavors in the past that were really victorious in terms of um, realizing a vision, right? Bolshevik revolution, you know. Chinese revolution, they were at some point defeated, right? Uh, but I don't think the vision has failed. So um, I think that um, it's really important, um, especially within the academe, uh, to maintain an autonomy uh, from uh, you know, the requisites of global capital by, um, by really, um, how is it? Um, holding on to, to critical theory or uh, like, um, uh, how is it? By, um, um, by asserting a definition of critical theory. That's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be a definition that is completely aligned with revolutionary mass movements, you know? Um, but I think at this point, what is really 
tactical and what is important is for the academe to assert an autonomy from um, you know global capital. Uh, and one way to do that, because it's in, it's within the academe, is to claim criticality, to claim critical theory, right? For the academe, it's it's a good way to start. Go for it, Mike. One of the things that um, is emerging here um, with uh, my students and with emerging also in terms of scholars is a move towards um, uh, an inclusive identity um, that's considering, you know, um, in solidarity with the move of um, like Latinx, of recognizing the, um, the non-binary, uh, but the spectrum in terms of our identities in regards to gender in regards to sexuality um i'm wondering has that what is the there was an article that was released at a blot lot by a scholar i think was it out of ateneo i don't know if you saw it um kind of reflecting on how um uh it was a critical take in terms of how filipinos in the in the philippines are responding to it um uh -huh. and i'm just wondering is that something that um in the Philippines that are people also um, claiming that, uh, that, that, that identity or that, that, that term Philippine X. And I'm just wondering what are your thoughts around that? And um, especially because I think it's connected to your ideas of um, what is it that we're imagining um, and how that's connected to issues of history. Like you, you were talking about your history to your grandmother and stories. So I'm just curious to know, like, what is your um, your thoughts around that? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I I have never I've never had a chance to read that article you're referring to. But what I've read would be the intervention that was led by Delia Aguilar, where you also figure prominently, along with Jeff Cabusao and Charlie Verick and. Yeah, so that's say, what I've read. Tita Dahlia is very sharp in bringing in people, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, what do you, all of a sudden, what do you think about this um, dialogue that we were having all of a sudden becoming public? And we're like, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that. And I, I love Tita Dahlia. She's so important. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> getting circulated. Yeah. So that, that, that article I've read, but I believe that article refers to the article that you mentioned. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I have not really uh, looked into it. Um, but on I a non-article, yeah, on a non-academic, like what is that a, a term that's circulating in the Philippines? Are people in yeah. terms of college X. students um, claiming no. that? No, no. It wasn't, it, yeah, no, it was, although it was not my first time to hear it, but I think it's something that I've heard when I was there in the United States, but not, but not really here. But it's interesting. Uh, I think what is interesting is the way uh, people have responded to it, right? Um, that there was immediate response. So um, I don't think it matters much whether it's something that people is using 
before it became a thing or before it became before it appeared in a dictionary is that right that's how it began right is that right it, it's now included in a, in, a, in, a, in a dictionary as, a, as an official term. I know that somebody out of the Atlantic, I think, um, tweeted something that got a lot of circulation right. in terms of looking at, um, she made Filipino, or they made Filipino food uh, uh -huh. and referenced it on a, on a tweet as, you know, my yes. Filipinex folks. Um, yeah, so it, yeah, there was this, there's this, I think it's, I think it began with this entry of Philippine X. And people were, you know, what's going on? Don't dictate upon us, etc. We don't, you know, it's alien to us, and so on and so forth, right? Um, <laughs> it's how is it? How am I going to make sense of it? I think, well, first, um, oh, so um, yeah, I think it's um, what matters is that it now matters to people, even if you know people are not using it. But suddenly, when it was brought up, it really, you know, it really agitated so many people, right? Uh, especially, I think, people in the, in the academe, um, students, and so on and so forth. Um, what do I think about it? Um, well, uh, I think people here are pushing back again. They are taking it at more like a prescription, right? Like um we, we we are supposed to determine how we should call ourselves right um and um and they don't know where it's they know where it's coming from and that's why they're pushing back like we don't have that kind of experience and so why are we suddenly being uh being told because it's a dictionary right so they felt like it's a prescription that you should call yourselves this so it's still the issue is still within the realm of identity Right. So should we call ourselves Filipino, Filipina or Philippine X? I didn't know it was. Is it Philippine X? I never knew how to pronounce it. I thought it was fi Philippine X, not Philippines. No, no, no. <laughs> See, <I don't> <laughs> <laughs> Did you say that? <laughs> it's, I I, it's Philippine X. Yeah. OK, Philippine like, X. Like, so it's, and it's drawing from Latin X. Latin X. Uh, yeah. yeah yeah oh okay so um so yeah so i think the debate uh well the not not um the apart from your article i think the debate uh with the exception of your article the debate is uh really um an identity for an identity and how to call this an identity so it's still within the realm of identity identitarian politics right um i have not been really uh how do you say i i think it's it's an important arena but at the same time i i tend to be critical about this particular arena because it already assumes uh the how do you say the very dangerous assumption of this philosophy called the linguistic turn right um meaning um well it, it what it basically claims is that well it's coming from this um uh you know end of history assumption right like uh you know the battle for economic systems is over so we just have to you know make things work where we're at 
And so where we're at is capitalism, right? So, um, so this is the politics. This is the politics. This is the only politics in town that we have to make sure that we are included. We have to make sure that, you know, uh, this space, which is uh, decidedly capitalism forever, is a system that is inclusive. So let's put a human face to it by, you know, making it inclusive to all identities, right? So I, I think that's pretty dangerous. And whether, um, whether, uh, people who are engaged in this identitarian politics know it or not, the linguistic turn really makes that assumption that the only game in town is liberal democracy when the problem is liberal democracy, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, we Real want to talk. be included, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. we, I mean, I mean, what is, I mean, I think inclusivity is, uh, how do you say, it's important uh, as a tactical solution to certain problems like access to education, affirmative action. It's something that I will not dismiss. I think it's important, right? But it cannot be a vision because it doesn't require, inclusivity doesn't require um, societal transformation, right? In fact, it tries to contain us to this system, to this liberal democratic system of free market, free elections, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, so that's my problem about it. That's why I don't, um, I, it's not something that I have engaged in so much in terms of um, scholarship because I might, um, you know, uh, send the wrong signal that I'm not interested in smashing the state and seizing power i'm interested in that <laughs> but if, if i start talking about philippine x they might think oh she's good with that already that's dishonest <laughs> yeah so let's all just be clear sarah raymundo is interested <laughs> in smashing the state and seizing power me too i'm with you on that <laughs> you know but which is not to dismiss um this uh you know this struggle for cultural recognition you know but yeah for me i'm 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 struggling with it in the sense that it's also it's pointing to a new kind of politics in mm -hmm. this particular moment um where the politics is un, like what is and you said it what is the vision what is the vision? Is a vision anti-capitalist? What is right. the relationship in regards to modes of production, the state? Um, and so I, 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 I will never dismiss anyone calling themselves if they want to define it in terms of their terms of this is who I want to call myself and how I identify. Power, like that is powerful, and I will never mm. dismiss that. Right. But then thinking about it in terms of like the way in which my mom spoke, which was. I was, it was a shame for me growing up because she would always confuse uh, my sister and me and she, he, and there was already kind of already um, an, an, a radical inclusivity in the language mm -hmm. uh, and it was not gendered. And so she prepared me, the Filipino language prepared me for this particular moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think what also makes me wonder is what is gonna be the connection with Philippine X to a project for um, and with the Philippines. 
and the Philippine diaspora. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and is it also kind of a, like, is that going to continue still an ongoing project for wanting to see a country, an, an islands of peoples being free? Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I was just really curious to know from your perspective and I, yeah. I really appreciate, yeah. yeah. I think it was it was um, Ethan one was written uh, a long time ago that um, and he makes a very good synthesis of this debate um, cultural uh, you know cultural recognition or um, economic redistribution. His argument is that uh, the only way to forge identity is through struggle. I mean, um, and and we see that in the Katipuneros, right? Andres Bonifacio. Um, um, I, I was, uh, there's a, a friend and a comrade who's asking me about uh, whether, um, he's Canadian and he's asking me whether there has been any move to um, change uh, the, the name of the Philippines because it's named after King Philip uh, to uh, someone else, uh, to something else. And um, so I said, there's really not been that uh, movement even during Spanish colonialism, right? Because I think they were not thinking in terms of, um, well, they, their identity is closely tied to this drive to break free from the yoke of colonialism, right? Um, and I think it's, um, although of course, colonialism and neocolonialism or imperialism are not the same, uh, but uh, the Philippine struggle, the, the Philippine anti-imperialist struggle is still, is not necessarily um, dismissive of identity politics, but it is connected there, right? Like, for example, when people, when, when I was there in the United States, I learned from comrades from there how they talk about why they're there, how they talk about being um, um, migrant Filipinos in the United States, because it's a product of forced migration. So I, I've learned from that. It's very clear that there's really no way that one can just separate um, identity from the underdevelopment of the Philippines um, under an imperialist system, right? So I think there's really um, a basis for um, you know, pushing for um, identity politics that is well grounded on an anti-imperialist politics, not just basis, but it's the only way to go. I mean, yeah. you can't just be <laughs> coming out and saying, hey, this is my choice. And right. yeah, I, but, you know, uh, there are Maybe conditions. We should put that on a, a t-shirt, anti-imperialist. It's the way to go. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah. And I've learned that from Filipino Americans, uh, at least the way to articulate it. Right. Uh, that uh, the reason why, you know, that Phil Am has everything to do with forced migration, that particular identity is a product of forced migration, is a product of um, compradors in the Philippines, uh, pimping Filipino citizens to, uh, you know, um, capitalist states and that's why, you know, yeah. they're all over the way. And you know this because this is your uh, specialization. <laughs> no, but I, I think about, um, first of all, wow, I'm learning so much. So thank you. I, it's 8.30 usually my, and 9.30. I'm usually, my brain is off now, but I'm learning so much. So thank you. But 
I do think, you know, as someone who grew up in my native um, language is Tagalog. And, you know, I was born in the Philippines and came to the United States at 10. Um, the whole Philippinex thing is, is confusing to me as someone who has a third grade, you know, fluency in Tagalog, because the Filipino language is so gender neutral, right? Sha, Sila are all, there's not a gender to that, right? And so I think Filipino or Filipina, um, that's a, not a necessarily like, I, you know, I'm not a linguist, whatever, but that's how I learned it, right? But I do think there is something to be said about Filipinex and radical queer theory that is often always tied to like shaking up the boundaries, shaking up the normative, you know, bounds of who is considered what kind of person in what body, right? And we can say that about um, the gendered and racialized labor that Filipinos are then sort of you know, um, sucked into the United States in, right? Migrant workers are often, you know, our, even our bodies, right? Um, living in New York for a little bit, Sarah, I don't know. But when, when I lived there, I was, I was mistaken as a nanny many times, you know, because I'm Filipina, right? So I think that if and when Filipinex, um, you know, discussions around that um, can sort of like dig their, you know, teeth into a queer theory that's anti-imperialist um, and that recognizes, like you said, its resonances to the Philippines and what does it have to do with Philippine liberation? I think um, that to me is the, the generative discussion that, I, that I'm seeking to. Okay. So I'm just gonna try to wrap us up and really our last, our, our, class, our, our last question is, um, What's giving you some hope here? What are your sites of hope, right? Um, so where do you where do you find that hope? And I know you began sort of um, our conversation with your conversation with your thoughts about the continuing organizing even online. Um, but you know, you can choose maybe what's your site of hopes. What's your sites of hope? And what do you think scholars? scholar activists role is um, during right now, this sort of time of rising fascism, macho fascism, you know, mm -hmm. in, our, in our respective places. Okay, I think, um, how is this? I think my, my primary motivation is really fear. <laughs> and I think fear is really a great motivation. Like, I, I just, you know, it's really, um, how do I say? Um, how, um, I really think that uh, this regime is super atrocious, and I am fearful. I will not. I will admit that that I'm fearful, and and because um, I recognize that fear, I know that I have to forge unities, right, with with comrades, with allies, with friends. So that's one. And um, another is, so, you know, we just need to expand. We need to reach out because of that situation, which I think is really real. We're not just making it up to, you know, create a political situation. Um, I think number two is, um, <laughs> um, my, 
Well, the reason why um, I, I'm not sure whether I'm a hopeful person. I think I'm more of a cynic, but I'm just driven to like organize and do some work because of the people around me. <laughs> I think that's, you know what I'm saying? I, yeah, so um, I think um, it's also important as, as scholars and as activists, uh, we recognize what makes us agitated, what angers us, what, you know, where our angst are coming from. I don't think these are things that should just be dismissed and like, oh, just quit that, right? Uh, just don't mind that. Just don't mind this particular discourse or this particular person. Just focus it. I don't think it works that way, right? Um, so, for example, um, maybe it was a week ago. I was super agitated by this tweet. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. <laughs> and I, I know, I don't remember what the tweet is exactly, but <laughs> I had two responses. First, which is related to identity politics. First, that's I the funny. Thought, the funniest part, Sarah, is that you don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot. But you know, so you were talking about generating lessons. So it was a generative. This was an experience generative of hope, because I I distinctly remember writing down some notes, and I thought that you know there used to be a time when um, being a female human being was you know was not something controversial now these people are making me feel like it's a hate crime <laughs> so, i don't know why so I, but that's how i felt at that moment like what is going on and, and then alongside that note was a uh, i i posted something on facebook about chelsea manning like where is she what is you know what's up with chelsea manning why are people not talking about them even um like you know, um, what is it? So pages, uh, social media pages uh, managed by, for example, uh, you know, dedicated to trans rights. They don't talk about Chelsea Manning, right? So I was thinking, why, 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 why be, and why would people um, um, who are advocating for for trans rights and rightly so, in my view, would talk more about J.K. Rowling, you know, like the person who thinks that Britain is the world, than Chelsea Manning. So I think it must have something to do with. So that really agitated me, and um, and then really forced me to gather some readings about queer theory, um, you know, and because I want to understand it better. Like you know, those feelings of you know, I. I felt like, why is this controversial? Why is my body controversial now? Why is being female? I feel like, you know, like being, why do I have, why is it something that I should be sorry for? You know, that, you know, that kind. And I know it's, it's, it's not well thought out. That's not really rational. That maybe that's even wrong. But, you know, there are discourses that make me feel that way. And, um, and I should make sense of that by learning more, right? And and the the you know so uh, the end product is being a hopeful person rather than being a cynic. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. <laughs> Those are my activities: <laughs> getting angry and <laughs> nice in making sense of the anger, reading. <laughs> mm. Well. 
making sense of it, organizing, <laughs> writing Taking about notes, it. Taking notes, tweeting. Yeah. Forgetting who, who tweeted it, who, who put it out in the first place. <laughs> what was the tweet about anyway? <laughs> this is awesome. Well, I, you know what? Recently, I, I, I've been reading um, Pavel Tatsulin. Oh, what's that? Simple and Sinister. I can't believe Mike is not into this. Um, this Russian guy who introduced kettlebells to the United States. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you're like, I can't believe how much and how far you read. Like, no, this was it's just really it was recommended to me by a comrade. So I thought I'd look into it and it was very interesting. Okay. So you, why though? Tell me about yeah. the the kettlebell guy, the person who introduced Okay, so it. first of all, he, you know, he finds it really ridiculous that he's being called the father of kettlebell. Did you even know that? Because he thinks that that's not his role. His role is, you know, introducing the role of gaining strength, <laughs> which all of us need, which the movement needs. Uh -huh. you know, so he says, I'm not just all about kettlebells. So, you know, his, this whole book is entitled Simple and Sinister. Yeah. That's going to be um, our next book club. Thing, yeah. Simple and Sinister. <laughs> Maybe this is the title for um, this part. This, this episode, this Simple episode. and Sinister. <laughs> Colin Sarah Raimundo. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Simple and sinister. You know, um, Rolando Tolentino has this idea called pakiwaring gitnang uri. Gitnang uri, is, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Which is this idea of um, like Filipinos in the Philippines, and I, I would argue here, I extended, it, I quoted it in my book that you know Filipinos have this aspirational middle classness, right? Like, you know, they're they're like migrant family member is abroad and they get the big screen tv and they're like they're feeling like okay you know i'm okay now or whatever right i have like fucking sarah raymundo's like reading list <laughs> like my aspiration is to really like mike said it's incredible sarah just how much you read and like how much you retain and then you don't have wrinkles in your forehead. And this is the reason why I want to ask, this is the really the last question, is how do you keep all of those ideas in your head and not have wrinkles? You don't have well, to I answer that. The key, the key is... <laughs> Anti-imperialist really struggle. Um, oh. Because I limit myself to, you know, uh, I, I limit my interaction with like-minded people, right? And so... Right. If you bring me in a context of, you know, where there are people who don't think the way I do, I don't think I can say anything. I, I, I will not be able to contribute anything relevant to the conversation because they have a whole uh, different um, gamut of related literature, <laughs> and, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not very inclusive. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Sarah Raimundo, you have been a gift for so long to me and yes. Mike. Oh my so God, so you grateful. guys. And you a, guys are a, my precious friends. A side of hope. You are, yeah.
Yep. In this conversation, this conversation, absolutely. And offering a vision of what it could look like to be and what it should look like to be a scholar Mm. activist um, who's writing about their concrete conditions and imagining something new. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And so that brings us that brings us a lot of hope. And so I I appreciate your time with us. Um, your story. I really appreciate this time with you guys. Thank you.